welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Coming to you magically, even though neither Aaron nor I uh, is at our usual station. We're both off on vacation, but we're pre-recording this podcast. And uh, how are you going to do that when you're on vacation, when you're out in the middle of nowhere, Aaron? How are you going to put this thing up? Well, geez, I still have to do uh, engineering reports, so I, I'll have access somewhere to the internet. Okay. I'm, I'm so, pretty sure my hotspot will, uh, will work. Oh, you'll be sitting outside a gas <laughs> station somewhere. No, I'm going to be sitting at a picnic table in the forest, so that can uh, barely even be called work. Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, I will be walking between pubs in Ireland. Jeez, we live a charmed life. <laughs> Uh, and I, ever since our last conversation on this topic, I've been I've been wondering about you and that pop up camper. And uh, any progress on rigging that thing so that it's actually habitable? Are you going to be able to keep your family dry? What, yeah. what are you oh, doing? Oh well, I don't have to keep them dry. That's just a luxury. There are many people who are <laughs> wet in beautiful places. Yeah, I yesterday I think I got the rest of the supplies to cut uh-huh. all the walls out and then uh, super glue Velcro all over the place and put up mosquito netting that was really cheap. And yesterday I got painter's canvas drop cloths that then uh-huh. I can duct tape or Velcro to the outside at night so the wind doesn't come through. So yeah, it should be perfect. The interior oh. is fabulous though. It's really held up well. Okay. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, any bears uh, in the part of the woods where you're going? Uh, so this is the campground I grew up going to. We'd spend a week at Donner Lake and then two weeks at Sugar Pine on the north side of Lake Tahoe. And wow. in all the years of camping there, I have never seen a bear there. Okay. But, I'm, you know, they still have bear boxes and tell you not to keep stuff in your tent. Yeah. Stuff like that. So how are your preparations going? I mean, you're you're at the final stretch, and I know you had a lot of plans that you had to get ready for the conversation and the walk. Yeah, in fact, my daughter I, I, I knocked me a little bit sideways yesterday with an email. Uh, you know, she said because we leave now in three days. Wow! Uh, for this for this trip, and uh, we'll we'll wind up spending a full day in Boston and then taking an overnight flight, and we'll land in Dublin on Father's Day. So she wrote to me yesterday and said, you know, I, I know that I told you that our goal is to get connected and stay connected for this entire trip. Uh, but I'm, I'm concerned that with the intensity of some of the conversations that we're going to have, it may be necessary for us to disengage at some point. So I think we should have a safe word. <laughs> wow. And my anxiety level immediately That's, jumped. It's like, holy. That is crap. terrifying. I, I uh, can't say that I've ever had someone say, hey, I'd like to have a conversation with you, but here's the safe word. I don't intend to be that confrontational, but I don't know what she has I know, in her little you? backpack. Yeah. So did she give any ideas for safe words? I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I agreed that we should have one. Pineapple, oh, no. pineapple, pineapple. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> so, so yes, I've got this, I've got this strange mix of anticipation and, and, uh, and terror. 
I mean, I really, really want to do this. Uh, that's so exciting. For those of you who are just catching up, I mean, I'm, I'm going on a 12-day walk with my daughter to have the conversations we didn't have when she was a teenager and I was an active addict. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And talk about the, the long-term consequences uh, of, uh, you know, this is an amends-making thing. So at any rate, uh, I'll be off. Uh, you'll be off. But uh, right now, as our friends around the country and around the world are listening, uh, we may as well be right uh, in their, uh, in their uh, earballs. Yes, right. Exactly. Exactly. Nice. Well, uh, let's before we get into our guest today, which I'm excited yeah. about, let's open the mailbag. I know we have a couple letters. Yeah. Uh, let's start with what, what you've got there. Okay, well, here's one uh, comes in from our good friend, Gavin. I don't know if you remember Gavin, but the last time Allie and I were out in California, uh, Gavin heard that I was there, and uh, we arranged to meet for coffee, and I got, a, I got a good morning in with us, a morning walk with the Samson guy. I had a great time with Gavin, and then he wound up uh, coming out here to Tennessee to the uh, Pirate Monk Recharge Weekend. Anyway. Uh, he's writing to both of us. Hi, Nate and Aaron. It's been almost a year since our time together in Tennessee. I've made it a discipline to listen to your podcasts on the way to work every day. Mm. And when I hear your I, voices... I know, I know people that discipline their children by making them <laughs> listen to it as well. <laughs> and when I hear your voices, it's like I'm sitting there laughing and sometimes crying with you. Nate, that laugh of yours makes me wish I was there with you, seeing your joy. Thinking back to last year when we were all together, thinking of all the new brothers we met, thinking about how far Samson's reach around the globe is, still mesmerizes me. Like Nate says, fantastic. Since that visit with you all, I've watched Heart of Man a few times, did a Bible study with our lead pastor and some brothers who were exposed to this type of transparency for the first time. Mm. The cave got to us all, but boy, did it change hearts. As a follow-up, just last night, we started the study on Chip Dodd's book, Voice of the Heart, using the accompanying study written by Phil and Jeff. The first night was awesome. I can't stop thinking about the impact you've made in our lives. Uh, Nate, as I'm listening to you taking that walk with your daughter, I just cannot tell you how much I pray for you. It's going to be darn exciting. I want to do that with my girl. And Aaron, the way you deal with the car troubles you had when you were camping with your daughter was inspirational. No bitching and moaning, just looking to what God had planned for you in that situation. That camping trip is something I love to do with my girl. I got to say, the struggles are never ceasing. The podcast I listened to yesterday with Brian Craig really meant a lot to me. Driving, thinking, reflecting. That alone time could be devastating if not used appropriately conversation about God leaving me when I sin is so untrue, even though that's what I sometimes like to tell myself. One statement from that podcast will never leave me. I am not the object of God's anger. I am the beneficiary of his love. I now ask myself, how often do I let my family think that they're the object of my anger and not the beneficiaries of my love? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can't wait to have you both left coast south in the very near future. Let's do that road trip. Best, Gavin. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks, yeah. Gavin. There's it's a lot, lot in there. 
Yeah. And yeah. Boy, connecting that uh, anger versus beneficiary of love deal to family. That's a, that is a heavy one for me right now because my family has been annoying me <laughs> with <laughs> things lately a lot. So, <laughs> darn it. I wish he well, had you're in that. that st- oh, you're in that stage with teenagers and all those teenagers. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, teenagers are annoying. That's, you know, it's that between that and there's six of us in the house. So there's oh, yeah. never a time that somebody's not doing something annoying. So, <laughs> and that's not fair to the rest of the people who are cool. They're being yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, but it just cycles. And uh, my, my attitude has not been as it should be. So screw you, Gavin. Thanks a lot. Wreck my life. <laughs> I gotta think about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got a letter here that's going to take us a few minutes to unpack. Okay. Uh, This letter is from Jen, so one of our female listeners. Nate and Aaron, thank you for the work that you do on the Pirate Monk podcast. You both sound incredibly handsome and masculine. Okay, now I'm going to that part up. I have enjoyed learning from the honest and raw conversations presented each week. I appreciate hearing the spiritual victories and the stories of men and women who do the hard work of transformation. A few weeks ago, you had a woman named Lynn Cherry on the podcast talking about porn addiction and infidelity. I loved her perspective, and the episode really hit home with me. However, I did feel that it left me with some questions after listening. I was hoping to hear your thoughts on these. I was married to an abusive sex addict. He was also a regular porn user. In my situation, the porn part of the addiction was a welcomed relief to me because it meant a moment of peace for myself. Mm. I never thought of porn as infidelity when it was happening, although I can understand why others would. I divorced my husband after quite the battle, but it was an uphill fight in the eyes of the church because he had not been unfaithful. Uh, I realized that my story is different than Lynn's and that this perspective of porn use within marriage is probably rare. My first question is whether or not porn is infidelity. It was also wonderful to hear Lynn speak of the hard work that her husband did in order to change. I loved hearing how proud she was of him and knowing that real change is possible. The reality is that some situations, however, do not end that way. What would you say to those spouses who do not put in the work and welcome the change? To the spouses that are stuck in the hard spots without an end in sight, what peace can their hearts find? Thank you again, Jen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. two, Two questions. First one, is porn infidelity? Hmm. So in her, in her case, which I, I think is a little unusual, she was battling the church to give her permission and to, to stop holding her into an abusive marriage where right. if, yeah. if this was infidelity, okay, now I have the Bible clause that everybody can give me permission to stop getting abused. Mm-hmm. Um, but that same question might be on other people's minds for different reasons. So what's, yeah. what's your first thought? Well, I, I think Jesus answers the question of whether porn is infidelity when he says, if you've looked on a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. 
uh, the whole purpose of watching porn <laughs> is sexual arousal. Uh, it arouses lust. And so, uh, yeah, I would say porn use is uh, infidelity. Uh, and when we, when we adopt these, this, uh, you know, a narrow uh, pharisaical definition of sin, to say that only if you're, you know, only if you have, you know, physically had sex with somebody other than your wife, only then are you guilty of adultery. Um, that allows uh, people who've managed not to go there, who've managed to feed lust in other ways. It allows them to congratulate themselves on an imagined righteousness. Uh, they can think that they're better than those you know, poor sinners who've uh, actually gone out and had physical sex with somebody, it leads, I mean, the fruit of that is terrible. Uh, you know, it, but it's humbling and hard to admit that uh, every married man has an adulterous heart. Right. So, okay. In, in response to that, that, that broadens the net so wide that, every man and most women are now caught in it. Yeah. So, so everybody can get divorced at any time. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus is, Jesus is calling us to recognize our desperate need for him. Yeah. But I think that brings up the important point that everybody has to ask, why am I asking this question? Yeah. Now I'm not saying that it's a wrong reason can be some great reasons, but I need to know what my reason is. Mm-hmm. And if my reason is I've got one foot out the door and I need to find the technical justification for me to go the rest of the way, that mm-hmm. might not be the best place to start. I might need to address the heart issue before yeah. trying to get into the technicality of this. Um, there's, there's an article written by our friends at Covenant Eyes on this subject. Um, don't have it in front of me, but I'm sure you can look up is porn infidelity and just click on the covenant eyes one and it's a pretty thorough look at like the word pornea which is used for you know you can leave uh, yeah. your spouse in cases of pornea what does that mean uh and some people certainly mistake that with oh well that's the root of pornography so surely that's what we're talking about uh, it's more than that i found in studying this counselors and pastors go kind of both ways because in the end it's it's much more of a heart journey of a couple and figuring out what's what's going on here yeah and and why am i asking that question uh for jen this this might have provided her with that loophole so that she could get church permission but the reality was she needed to not be present with that person and the church should have been protecting her that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. So I, I totally get what Lynn was saying, and I think it is important for us to take it seriously. Um, I just worry a little bit when we're trying to land on the technicality of give it a yes, give it a no. Is it the same as adultery? Is it the same as cheating? That's a, it's its own thing, and it means different things to different people as far as why the husband's doing it or why the wife is doing it. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if that clarified it or completely muddied it. I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, there's not a lot of, yeah, here's the thing. 
in our brokenness, we want black and white answers. We really, really do. Uh, and we want to be able to apply those answers across the board so that we don't have to deal with real people. Um, and in my experience, that kind of uh, cut and dried uh, legalistic approach uh, is destructive and it just kills the people on the margins. Which I don't think Lynn was, she wasn't going there when she said it. No, 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 no. Um, I will tell you this. It, 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 in my experience, I know that there are men who love their wives, deeply love their wives, and and get ensnared in pornography. Um, and they lust after somebody other than their wife, but um, they're but they don't have a heart. They still have a heart to love their wife. They're still committed to the marriage. Um, I also know uh, men who whose heart left their wife a long time ago, mm. whose commitment has disappeared. Their commitments, they're, they're, they're there out of some kind of obligation or appearance or they're trapped for financial reasons or social reasons, but uh, they don't love their wife sacrificially anymore. They've abandoned, um, you know, they've, they, they, they've abandoned the union. And even if they haven't had physical sex with another woman, um, they're running uh, an affair with a harem. Mm -hmm. Now, now here's here's the good and the negative side of this question for individuals. Okay, the dangerous side to me feels like uh, now I'm just assuming we're we're generalizing to the husband's the one looking at porn, the wife's the one. Having, yeah, yeah, it could very well be the other way around. Very well be the other way around, but. I'm picturing a wife who is going through the process with her husband. He's struggling maybe currently or in the past. She's working on it. They're moving towards each other. And then all of a sudden she goes, wait, that wasn't just porn. You were cheating on me. And now it hits a new level of like, yeah. let's start over with yeah. this process because I didn't know I was dealing with an adulterer. Yeah. That becomes unhelpful when yes. we change our vocabulary uh, and when we're in process on the positive side, I think it's really helpful for guys to have this in mind that as, as you said, Jesus told us if I'm looking at another woman with lust in my heart, it's adultery. I think the person using pornography as false intimacy should take it that seriously. They should yes. see it as that. Yes, I agree. I agree. All right. Second question was, uh, you know, Lynn has a husband that made it through and put in the work. What do we say to a husband or a wife who's living with a spouse who really has no desire to engage the work, who is not engaging the work? Um, and so they are stuck in a marriage. And, and this is super common, as you know. Often yeah. it is one person in a marriage who decides we need to work and then they end up doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you say to them? Well, I, I, I am grateful that my wife drew a line in the sand. And she said, uh, you know, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. She didn't uh, outright threaten divorce, 
Uh, I kind of got the message that maybe what we would look at then was an extended roommate situation, but she was, uh, she's at any rate. Um, Her, uh, as long as she was willing to put up with it, I didn't have the motivation to do the work. Mm. Um, And, uh, and Allie also, she wasn't, um, she'd grown skeptical of my uh, ability to follow through on my promises to change because I'd made countless promises to change. Um, so she took a wait and see attitude. She didn't, she she said, I don't think you can change. Uh, she didn't say you can't. She said, I don't think you can. And she adopted a wait and see approach. I'm grateful that she was open-minded enough and was able to, to actually watch my progress that after a couple of years, she was able then to re-engage and begin to trust me again. Um, but she, but she saw me do the work. I, I, I do think that um, I, I see two tragic things in some of these situations. I, I know not every marriage can survive. I love to see the ones that do a great many do. They, they don't not only survive, they become better than they ever were mm-hmm. because now we're actually living in humility and brokenness together. And um, I do see some cases where guys really are doing the work and uh, change is there, uh, but a wife is so deeply hurt and so embittered and has already drawn up the exit plans and she's gone and all she's going to do is build a case for her departure. Uh, And he's never going to get credit for what he's done. (laughs) That happens sometimes. Um, I also see marriages that could be a lot better, but a wife will not give her husband the motivation to change um, because uh, she continues to live in in uh, denial, continues to uh, evade the conversation. Uh, and so she allows him to live in this gray area forever. Right. So even taking this, you know, not just thinking pornography, but about any, you know, maybe you have uh, a spouse who's a workaholic who's just not present. And when they are yeah. home, they're on their phone, on the TV, they're just not engaging. Um, so you've just recommended there has to be a line in the sand of, hey, yeah. this, this is not acceptable and they need to feel the weight of that. Yeah. Second, I think counseling is really important and that can be a part of the line in the sand. Absolutely. Because it's very easy for any of us who are in our ruts to figure out how to get out of hard conversations, whether it's by using anger, that if you bring this up, I'm going to have an angry outburst and you'll be afraid to ever bring that up again. Or uh, use withdrawal where, you know, you just will end up being punished through disengagement for a week if you bring that up. So having another person in the room can be really important. And I think with a spouse that doesn't want to do the work, there has to be that line in the sand. Mm-hmm. And I just want to be careful. This just can't be like threats of divorce, but it just has to be clear that this isn't going to be accepted. Yeah. And possibly the thing that a spouse, whether a man or a woman, needs to be actively doing 
in those times of intense loneliness and sadness when they feel like they're the only ones doing the work is that you have to have friendships that are filling you up in love and intimacy. It doesn't have to just be, oh, I have a friend that I can talk to about my spouse. No, you need people that just love you. The stuff that you're lacking from your spouse is present in the body of Christ, and that is the manifestation of God's grace and his love. That's right. And it needs not to be a potential romantic partner. So that's why it's good to hang with the brothers. Or the the sisters. Or the sisters. If you're a babe. Yes. Uh, Or a a chick. A a lady. A woman. (laughs) If you're a woman. Uh, and that's and that's a hard. I I don't say that lightly because a person who is in that kind of despondent situation, a despondent marriage, the last thing you want to do is go make friends and hang out and yeah. learn to reengage. But you must, or else you will wither on the vine. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, I think we solved everybody's problems. Uh, <laughs> we can move on to the interview portion of the show. Okay. okay. Uh, those were deep questions. Those are hard questions. Yeah. And far be it from us to pretend that what we just said solves the, all the complexities of it. Right. All right. Well, we got to do it. We got to do it. We got to take a break. Tell me, Nate. Yeah, we're going to take a break and come back with a great guest. How about we do that here on the Pirate Monk Podcast? All right, boys. Come on. Well, welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast and to our guest this week, an old friend. I think it qualifies now as an old friend. Kirk does. Well, uh, I don't know how many... definition of old, Nate. <laughs> it, also, it also depends on your definition of friend, really. That's right. <laughs> Some years ago, and I, I, you know, I'm at that stage of life where I can't, I, I lose track of the years. But a few years ago, I was invited north uh, of the border into the uh, frigid wasteland of Canada by, <laughs> by Promise Keepers Canada. Uh, and by the way, uh, Promise Keepers Canada, you know, is a very much uh, an on-fire going concern. Busy, busy men up there doing great things. And it was my privilege, has been my privilege for several years uh, to work up there from time to time. Uh, in some of their events. And we have with us today the president of Promise Keepers Canada, Kirk Giles. Hi, Kirk. Hey, Nate. How are you? Good. Welcome, uh, your highness. Is this, is this where, like, I feel like there should be a theme song playing right now. Like, like, <laughs> okay, I will, I will work that out in edits. All right. <laughs> <laughs> now, is it God Save the Queen, or what do we do? I don't know what well, we do. I'm pretty sure that you guys have a, a theme song for your American president, don't you? Like, Hail to the Chief or something like that? Uh, I know. I'm sure that there is much sentiment for altering the uh, theme song for the Chief, but <laughs> we won't go there. I do remember, I do remember several years ago, uh, before the last American election, a year before the last American election, I was in a car with you and Rick. Mm-hmm. And we were driving, I think, from Banff to Calgary. And you asked me to handicap the upcoming presidential election. And somebody said, 
what about Donald Trump? And I laughed and I said, oh, he's a clown and he's in it for the publicity and he doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell. Yep, I remember you saying that. And then today, uh, I've discovered that you don't have the gift of prophecy. <laughs> and you were kicked down to the minor leagues of this podcast after that. Yeah. So, okay, before we get started with wherever you want to go, Nate, because, of course, I never know what's going on. <clears throat> Kurt, give me, the, give me the process between when I was sitting in the L.A. Coliseum with 72,000 men in, like, 94 or 95 with my dad doing the promise keepers thing. So tell me what, what's been going on for the last 25 almost years. Yeah. Great question. Uh, you know, I can mostly speak to Canada and, and not as much to the things that have been happening in the States. Promise keepers, Canada and PK USA are kind of two separate organizations. We're, we're linked by a name, uh, and, and some core values, but uh, promise keepers in Canada started at around 95 and, um, I know that shortly after 1997, when uh, uh, there was the Stand in the Gap event in Washington, D.C. that happened, uh, that uh, PKUSA organized and had like a million guys gathered to pray for the country. Um, shortly after that, both the Canadian and American organizations went through um, some challenging times financially uh, and, and so uh, had to kind of reorganize and restructure and and move forward. And so here in Canada, uh, we've really been transitioning for the last oh, 10 plus years to being a very much a, a discipleship focused organization. We still do conferences, but they're not conferences that are meant to bring together tens of thousands of guys. Uh, they're, they're meant to be going back to the same city year after year and just keep walking with guys all year round. We, we just find multiple ways to keep walking with men year round here in Canada and, and supporting them and standing with them. And, you know, by, by God's grace and a lot of hard work, uh, this past year has been our biggest year ever in terms of number of men that we've been able to reach here in Canada. And uh, we're, we're pretty excited about the things God's been doing up here north of the border. Does it still revolve around the, uh, was it the seven promises, if I remember right? Yeah, you know, the, the ministry when it first started was very much built around the seven promises of a promise keeper and uh, just some core areas of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. For us here in Canada, we, we still have those, but we, we really don't um, play them up too much. We kind of downplay them. Uh, our focus is we want to focus on calling men to follow Jesus. Uh, we found that a lot of men felt like they were belonging to a club uh, called Promise Keepers, and uh, uh, we just felt like it was kind of taking away the focus from where it needed to be, which was on Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we put our, our energy, uh, there's the theme song, by the way, and uh, <laughs> we, put our, uh, we put our energy as a ministry here in Canada into uh, – uh, just how can we point men to Jesus first and foremost and, and have that and have him be the one that their allegiance is towards as opposed to a particular organization. All right. Well, you headed off the next question, which was, so Canadian men also need Jesus. That's So you took well, care of that. Well, you know, at least a few of us. Uh, there's, I mean, not many left, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kirk, I um, got in touch with your office because I got wind of your new book, and uh, and I was so uh, excited about the book. I haven't, I don't actually have a copy of the book yet. 
Uh, I'll, get, I'll get you one, Nate. Okay. Just so I'm sure I'm not like lying about a book or actually. No, no. Yeah. But, but uh, when, I, when I heard about this topic of the book, and this is this topic I've heard you talk about uh, for a number of years. I know you're passionate about fatherlessness and fathers and fatherhood. And when I heard that you'd actually come out with a book called The Seasons of Fatherhood, uh, Why Fathers Matter at Every Season of Life. What, what's the subtitle? Yeah, why dads matter at every stage of life. Yeah, you got yeah. it right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and because uh, I hear as a constant refrain in my private interactions and in the meetings I attend, uh, and in my own sharing with my own brothers, uh, we're a bunch of guys walking around an awful lot of us with daddy issues, father issues, one kind or another, trying to be good fathers trying to compensate for the mistakes that we have made ourselves as fathers and trying to deal with, uh, you, know, you know, the wounds and bruises and hurts of the, uh, our own upbringing. Um, usually from dads who were doing their best, but didn't understand exactly what we needed. Yeah. I thought, man, if there's a guy who can speak to Samson about fathers, Kirk Giles is the man. Wow. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Is, so yeah, fix so, us. go. Yeah, no. So okay. So standard question. I'm sure you yeah. get this everywhere. Why did you want to write the write the book? You know, honestly, I actually didn't want to write the book um, <laughs> because I didn't want the pain of listening to people whine about what I said wrong in the book and <laughs> uh, going through the editing process and whatnot. But I'll tell you, it boils down for me that. Um, as I've, I've had the privilege of working with men for over 20 years now. And uh, a lot of the things that you've described, Nate, uh, are the things that I've experienced. And one of the things that I've personally experienced as a dad, I got four kids and going through, I, I've discovered how there are just different ways to be a dad in different stages of my kids' lives. Mm. And there's a different role I play at different stages of their life. And if I get that wrong, um, I actually can really screw up my kids and I can frustrate myself in the process because I, I just get focused on trying to be something my kids actually don't need at this particular stage of life. And right. is, is that possible to flesh out in a simple way or is that like, yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I will. Yeah, I'll definitely flesh it out. So getting around to this book, I actually tried teaching this for the last couple of years at some of our events and we had, uh, just a great response to it. And so I just really got to a point where I think God just kind of challenged me and said, okay, just put it down in paper and get a book out there uh, on this. So that's really why I did it. It wasn't because I really wanted to do it. It was just because I really felt compelled and convicted that I, I needed to put these thoughts down on paper. Uh, but to flush that out a little bit, um, uh, you know, I think that um, in the book, first of all, it's a short book because I know a lot of guys are not great big readers. And I really wanted a book that was going to be accessible for just about any guy to be able to read. And uh, so we, we really summarized it into three core stages of life. Um, you start out when your kids are younger and you're really like a leader for them. Uh, you, you have to make the decisions because they're, they don't know, you know, they don't know where they should go to school or where they should go to church or, you know, when they should eat or sleep or any of those things. You've got to make those decisions for them. And you're the leader. Now, of course, you don't do that in isolation. You're working with mom and and uh, you're a team in that, but you're really the leader making the decisions. And then as they start to get a little bit older and start to move towards their teen years, 
um, you really transition in into not being a leader, but being more of a coach. And when I think about a coach, I think about how a coach, he puts structure on a team um, and, and he gives guidelines and general rules for the team and, and has instruction for how the team's going to operate. But at the end of the day, the players on the field still have to go out and kind of execute the coach's plans. And the coach gives them freedom to kind of improvise sometimes, depending on the play, and gives them a lot more flexibility. Uh, and, and so that's the stage that you're at when your your kids are kind of entering into those teen years is you're getting more to that place where you're still creating structure, but you don't have control over everything. Your, your kids need to be able to start to make decisions and learn some things uh, for themselves at that stage of life. And then as they move towards adulthood, um, you really become like a mentor to them. And it's a different stage. Um, you, you really, you no longer have any authority at all over their life, uh, but you still have influence. And, and so you don't want to step back uh, from the influence you have and think that, hey, I don't matter anymore. My kids are adults and they don't really need me anymore. It's actually the opposite. They, they still need you just as much as they ever needed you, but they just need you in a different way than they used to need you. And, uh, and so you, you move into that mentor role and you learn to ask great questions and you learn to be invested in their life in a very different way than you would when they were younger. So that's a really high level, but, but that's, that's kind of the nutshell of the, um, or the essence of where we go in the teaching in the book. All right. So that brings up two questions. I'll try to remember the second one, but the, <laughs> the two problems I've found. Yep. One, when you get to that teenage coach age, there seems to be a time where discipline, as you disciplined them when they were younger, becomes counterproductive. And yep. yet I see so many parents that when things start to get out of control, they double down on the discipline that isn't working. Yep. So what, what is the process of learning how to be wise? Because obviously every kid's different with what helps them make yep. good decisions. Um, so how does a parent figure out this is the appropriate kind of discipline and this is the stuff I need to let go and let maybe let some chaos happen in their life because they need to learn from it? Yeah, and those, I think it's tough to come up with a formula answer to a question like that because the key to it all is really knowing your kids. Uh, each kid is different and you have to know how they're wired and what's going to make, uh, what's going to be the most effective thing uh, in investing in, into that child's life. So I'll give you an example with, with some of my kids, um, we reached a couple of different stages where uh, we, we, I took their phone away from them for a month. Well, you would have thought it was the end of the world uh, because I took their phone away from them for a month. Uh, but that was a, a, an act of discipline where I said, look, you, you betrayed a confidence that I had in you about an issue. And because you betrayed a, a confidence and a trust in you, I, I, there is a, there is a consequence to that. And, you know, it was your phone that was the culprit in this case. So this is what you use. So I'm going to remove that from your life for a period of time. And, uh, and then you need to be able to show yourself trustworthy around something like this. I think it's really important for parents to also talk about what hills do we want to die on? uh, in that stage of life. Um, you know, there, there are, there are a few that my wife and I have worked through and said, these are the hills for us to die on. Uh, but I, I see a lot of parents dying on hills that are not worth dying on, uh, mm. in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, does it really matter whether or not your kid comes home with purple hair? Like in the grand scheme of life, uh, 
does it really matter? And, uh, uh, and I know you might be upset about it in the moment and, and you might think, you know, why, why do they got a mohawk all of a sudden? Like, this is just crazy. Um, but, you know, I've really learned that parenting is a marathon and not a sprint. And too many, um, so as dads, we tend to have two extreme responses. One extreme is we're kind of absent and we kind of go, oh, they'll, they'll get over it. Uh, and then the, and so we don't do or say anything. Uh, or there's the other extreme response, which is we just overreact to every single thing that happens uh, because we're still trying to control their life. We're still trying to lead them in every detail. And if you have the view of parenting as a marathon and not a sprint, um, it, it challenges you on both of those extremes. It, it creates this sense of I still need to act because I need to keep moving forward with my, with my kid. But I also don't want to overreact uh, because I got to remember that, you know, there's still another day of the race to keep going on. And if I overreact, my, my child might just shut me out uh, right. from things. And, how, and so you got to figure out that balance. So how would you define the difference between punishment and discipline? Um, I would say that the difference is the attitude of your heart, first of all. Uh, what are you trying to accomplish with your child? I find that for a lot of men when we're working when we're, we're trying to um, mentor or coach our kids uh, or even lead our kids, um, it's punishment is usually, it's not so much about retribution. It's because we're embarrassed as a parent and we're trying to control them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so our embarrassment is coming out in the discipline towards our son or our daughter. So and we're taking, we're taking it out on them. We're so, dis- to, so to be totally honest, punishment, punitive punishment without discipline. So there's no particular purpose of a lesson or learning is really vengeance based. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and discipline is far more the heart of discipline. I just think about what the scripture teaches about God's heart for his own children and how he disciplines those that he loves. And, and the heart of discipline is always about the best interests of the child, the best, you know, what's going to bring life ultimately, what's going to save them from destruction and bring them life. And, uh, and that needs to be our heart as dads, not so much that my kid's going to be exactly who I want them to be, but more about how am I going to constantly be chipping away and shaping them to be more the way the person that Jesus wants them to be. Uh, and, And having that, that life-giving attitude as opposed to that vengeance attitude. So how does the prodigious father and the prodigal son represent this form of scary and possibly judged as bad parenting? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great story, the prodigal son. I love that story because you get this this picture of a dad who – um, ultimately kind of lets his son go and experience the ways of the world, and even give him the money to go. I was going to say, it, right? he funded it. Yeah. You know, it's like, here you go. And I, I got to say one of the scariest moments for me as a dad have been the moments where I recognize that I'm actually powerless to stop my kids from making really dumb mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see them running towards the edge of the cliff and, and, and you see what the end result is likely going to be. And everything inside of you wants to stop them from experiencing that pain. But you know that they need to experience it. You know that they need to go through that fall. And it's going to hurt. 
And it's also going to become time consuming for you on the other side of it uh, and emotionally consuming for you on the other side of it. And so you got to prepare yourself for that. I think you, you warn your kids the same way that God warns us. Right. Right. But, but, but you're not in control anymore you let them do it. And that, and that's what this father does. You picked out the scariest part to me because when I, how many parents do I know that are like, well, you're going to go do it, but I'm not going to support you. Right. And, and of course it's a case by case basis. Yeah. Uh, But in this story of God as father, he does bless him and fund him towards his own destruction. Yeah. So what I, what am I supposed to understand as a parent, especially when I hear so many people say, well, I'll let you go, but I won't support you. <laughs> and again, I think it comes back to what you said, right? You got to, you have to know the situation. You got to know your kid. You got to be able to have that kind of discernment of what, what do you do in those moments and, and how do you do it? I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to it. Let me interject with a story if I can. Yeah. Um, my daughter is now a single mom, 38. She and I are off on a great adventure in another week. 20 years ago, uh, when she was 18, she was determined to marry. And uh, it, was a, it was a bad decision. And um, <clears throat> I had been, um, she and I were real close. And uh, her mother prevailed on me to use all the leverage I had to try to stop this thing. And uh, I tried to talk my daughter out of it. She said, no, she was going to do it. Um, I told her that I wouldn't pay for the wedding. Didn't matter. She was going to do it anyway. I told her I wouldn't walk her down the aisle. It didn't matter. She was going to do it anyway. Yeah. I said I wouldn't come to the wedding. Uh, finally, I called my dad. And really, one of the very first, one of the very few times that I called my dad for advice uh, and I, he would have been like the age I am now, I guess, when I called him. And I told him what was going on. I told him I was really f- afraid for my daughter because I was, I was convinced this was going to turn out badly. And he said this. He said, um, parents can't divorce kids, but kids divorce parents all the time. If this is as bad as you think it is, she's going to need you. Um, so my advice is, pay for the wedding, walk her down the aisle and pray, yes. which we did. And uh, about a year later, uh, when we had moved to Tennessee, uh, she called and she tells, tells me now that she was afraid to make the call. It, t- it took her a while to make the call because she didn't know how angry we might be. Uh, but she just said, uh, daddy, come get me. And of course I caught the next plane to Florida. And I still remember the scene of, uh, you know, packing her stuff into a, into a, a trailer and her coming out of the apartment with the last two things, a coffee maker in one hand and in the other arm, the Mickey mouse that we'd bought her at Disneyland when she was four mm-hmm. and her saying, dad, thanks for coming to get me. Wow. Now um, I'm so grateful that I got some coaching from my dad. Uh, to let go at a point where I was just doing everything I could possibly do to prevent her from making a mistake that she was going to make anyway. Yeah. So in those moments when we most want to control a kid, our attitudes and our responses are either creating a door that they can come back into 
our relationship through or we're bricking a wall and then they're stuck on the other side separate from us yeah absolutely and i think that the the key you know in in the story is the idea of you're still you're giving your warnings as a dad mm-hmm. but you're saying i'm i'm still here with you all right yeah. and and so it's not an abdicating of your responsibility of the dangers that you see right. and warning them of the dangers that you see, but it's, it, but it's a sense of, I'm still with you, even as you make these choices. And I, I think that that even is a picture of the way that God relates to us. You know, any, any time that any temptation comes around us and the spirit of God warns us and reminds us, don't go down that road. There's danger, Right. But it's not like God abandons us when we go down that road, Mm. right? He's still there with us even as we go down that road. And and he's there to pick up the pieces um, as we falter and fall, too. And I I think that's just – that's a beautiful picture of really what fatherhood looks like at that particular stage of life especially. Mm. Yeah. All right. So second question. This is a pet peeve of mine. And I am completely free of sin in it because my kids aren't old enough for me to have victimized them in this way yet. So (laughs) I see it a lot when I'm uh, getting ready for a couple to get married where parents start inserting themselves into their adult children's lives as if they had authority, even though they have no responsibility in the outcome of what they're trying to authoritatively say. Mm -hmm. And that they're still trying to be responsible as parents, but completely inappropriately. Mm-hmm. So what, speak strong words and get people to stop it, please. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I've been dealing with a couple of situations in my own world over the last little while uh, that are exactly what you're describing. And, and I, I would just say to, to dads uh, right now, you got to let your kids grow up. Like this whole thing, and I've got a daughter who's 18 years old, and I joke with my daughter all the time that, you know, you're not allowed to get married until you're 85, and, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm dead, uh, all those kinds of things. But the reality is that even when I say that, I'm actually sending a wrong message to my daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sending this message of you, you're always meant to be just my little girl and, and never meant to grow into the beautiful woman that God created you to be. And, I, you know, in the book, I actually talk about the importance of a rite of passage uh, for fathers to take their kids through a rite of passage to transition them uh, towards being adults because of two reasons. One, for the benefit of the child. So the child starts to change their thinking about life and starts to see themselves as moving towards being an adult. But second, for the benefit of dad, for the benefit of the parents to force, it's almost like a milestone for the parents Mm -hmm. to go, okay, as a parent now, I need to change and transition my thinking in the way that I treat my child, in the way that I relate to my child, uh, and, and begin to think of them as more of an adult. So when I took my kids through their rite of passage, I said to my boys, I said, you need to know that from this day forward, I'm going to treat you the same way I would any other man. Hmm. And uh, you're no longer just my son, but you're a man first. And yeah. that's how I'm going to relate to you. And that's what I would say to any guys. You've got to change your thinking and transition your, your attitude towards your kids and let them grow up. Let them become men and women uh, of God in the days ahead without you having to kind of have and your fingers in everything. 
that makes me think there are other cultures that when a child goes off to their tribal, you know, manly, whatever, go out for three days, kill a lion, that kind of thing. When they come back, uh, I remember reading about cultures where mothers were not allowed to use the same words in speaking to that child. They could yeah. no longer be childish words. They were now yeah. man words. Uh, what a, that is a huge thing for us to understand. Oh, it is. And I, I mean, it's not always easy either. Like after my kids went, after we went through that with my kids, there were a few times where uh, I started challenging my sons around different issues, not telling mm -hmm. them what to do, but challenging them like I would any other man. And, and they were like, dad, stop coming after me about this. Like, you, you know, like I, I'm just your kid and, and everything. I'm like, no, 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 no. Remember, I told you. I'm not going to treat you like you're just my son anymore. I'm going to treat you the same way I would a man. And they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, it was all cool, it was all cool at first, but then when it actually started being lived out, uh, it, it, they had a hard time uh, adjusting to it. But it was good. It was, it was a good process to go through. This might touch on a blind spot that we experience, I think all of us experience in the church, but it probably comes out in parenting as well when we try to get people to understand and believe the thing that God's pressing on our heart now without acknowledging it took like 20 years yeah. of stupid to get to that moment. But yeah. now we want everybody else to take one step into that maturity. Absolutely. So our now kids have to be as dumb as we were first. That's right. And that's where you've got to have kind of that, that frame of reference of your kids are actually God's kids more than they're your kids. And, and same way that you're one of God's kids more than you're your parents' kids. Mm. And, and so you, you, you live with this reality that God has been fathering you, yourself, your whole life and shaping your life. He just happens to use your parents in that process. Mm. Uh, Kirk, let me, uh, in Samson, we used to say, and I still hear it sometimes, that one of the things that we do is we help refather each other. Mm -hmm. uh, there is... Uh, a very common experience in Samson of guys with absent fathers. They grow up without a father in their lives. Now you have some acquaintance with uh, what that produces. Talk to us about kind of uh, the fruit of fatherlessness. Mm. Yeah. You know, so in, 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 uh, the, uh, yeah, in a Canadian context, uh, about 10 to 15% of the families in Canada are, fatherless homes, mm -hmm. um, families led by a single mom. And here's, here's the thing that happens consistently. Uh, in every major social problem that exists in our country, the root kind of common element and thread that's interwoven through the whole thing is the absence of dads. So where there is poverty, the most likely people to live in poverty in our country are families led by single moms. So dad's mm -hmm. not around. Where there is homelessness, those people are statistically more likely to be coming from fatherless homes and situations. Uh, where there are youth who are in prison, uh, they are most likely coming from fatherless uh, environments. People who are in gangs, uh, uh, and, and you can go on and on and talk about every major social issue in a Canadian culture and and I would say probably also in an American culture, uh, kind of the thread that's, that connects all of those dots together are people who are coming from fatherless uh, environments. Uh, I, I remember years ago being at, at a conference in South Africa where 
felt like I didn't belong. I should leave partway through. And they were talking about all the major uh, social challenges globally. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had an American psychiatrist who came up to me and said, uh, why do you feel disengaged? What do you do? So I told him what I do. And he said, you need to read my journal. And he opened up his journal of notes from every day of the conference. And on every major social issue, he said, he wrote this comment at the top of his journal. What about the men? Who's the person in the room dealing with the root cause of all of these challenges and problems? And he said, the reason why you feel isolated in this room is because you're the only person who's actually dealing with the root cause. Everybody else is doing good work, but they're all putting Band-Aids on it. Mm. And, uh, uh, and so that is what's happening with fatherlessness is that if we don't deal with the root issue of absent fathers, both in terms of bringing healing to men who have come in from that environment, as well as doing preventative work so that we kind of chip away at it and so that there's not as much of a problem with fatherlessness. We don't do that. We don't deal with the root. Uh, we will constantly just be putting band-aids over all the major social issues our world is facing. And uh, we won't really get anywhere at the end of the day. So what do we say to the single moms out there that say, wow, if fathers are so irreplaceable and important in a child and my kid's life, but my uh, child's father isn't around, what would you recommend they do? I would highly recommend that they do everything possible to get a man connected into their life. Uh, Just not so much in the sense of, you know, you have to go and just date any guy and start getting him involved in the family, but more in the sense of whether it's connecting with like a big brothers association or other mentoring initiatives that exist in different communities across the country, but connect your kids with opportunities where they can have a male influence into their life. It won't perfectly replace dad, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a step in the right direction. And, and again, statistically, even those kids who are coming from a family led by a a single mom, even if they have a father influence in their life, like a mentor or somebody like that, um, statistically, those kids are going to be better off than the kids who don't. And they'll be more productive in society will be healthier uh, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Uh, and, and there is just a benefit for them to have these men in their life. And not just speaking about the boys, the girls need it too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I mean, obviously there, there is a, a deep level of caution in our world today because of abuses that men can have, uh, uh, towards both boys and girls, uh, for that matter. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you go through the right systems and channels to, to make sure your kids are protected. You don't just take any guy off the street who wants to help out. Uh, but, you know, I, I just really uh, believe that both, and statistically, both boys and girls uh, need the influence of a man in their life. Nice. Yeah. So, Nate, you had mentioned that Promise Keepers Canada had something with a program with the word father in it. That's all I heard and understand. So explain this one of you two. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to explain. So the vision around it has been, how do you get Christian men who are kind of in a a relatively healthy situation? They're growing as a man and moving in the right direction as a man how do you get them to be engaged in, in mentoring young people who are coming from father uh, absent families? And, uh, and so we 
we created a, uh, a system whereby we would train up uh, men all across Canada uh, of what, it, what does it mean to mentor a child that's coming from a, a fatherless uh, family. And then what we did was we partnered with different agencies on the ground in different communities, whether it was Big Brothers or whether it was other agencies. And we became kind of a, um, a connecting point where we would help to recruit men and then connect them with these agencies. Uh, one of the real success stories for us has happened in Ottawa, which is our, our cap the capital of our country. And uh, we actually ended up working uh, with a, a group of uh, inner city leaders in Ottawa to develop an agency. We, we helped train them to develop an agency for their community and their neighborhood. Uh, and then have been building mentors in, and they've got a strong group of mentors happening right now, investing in the lives of these uh, young people. Uh, we've heard stories, incredible stories, of, of where uh, a mentor is working with, a, I remember one story in particular, a mentor was working with a child who was a, lived across the street from him. The dad had passed away. Uh, so it wasn't that dad was abdicating his responsibilities. He was literally gone uh, from the earth. And so uh, this man began mentoring this, this boy who lived across the street. Uh, not, not a Christian family, but just started pouring into this boy's life and, and uh, caring for him, spending time with him. And uh, after a little while, um, the man went and asked the mom for permission to bring the boy to church with him. He said, hey, do you mind if, if your son comes to church with our family? And the mom said, absolutely, no problem. And so the boy starts going to church. And a few months later, um, uh, mom says, hey, is there any chance I can go to church with you guys too? And so, uh, you know, uh, over a period of time, uh, this whole family uh, ended up coming to put their faith and begin follow, following Jesus. Uh, and it really started because one man cared enough to begin to care for and invest in the boy who lived across the street whose dad had passed away. Uh, it's a, just an incredible thing. Yeah, my, my, my encouragement to Samson guys, especially the older guys, the guys perhaps who, like me, live with regret of uh, missed opportunities when their children were young and they were oblivious and otherwise engaged. This is a way, uh, not we need to atone for our own sins, but this is a way of making a living amends. Uh, it's a way of bringing some healing in an area of life where maybe we've been uh, instruments of destruction, unwitting or otherwise in the yeah. past. And well, I, I also think too, Nate, that what happens is when we've been, when we've been, instruments of destruction in the past, when we failed in our past, we easily convince ourselves as men that we're pretty much useless. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I have nothing to give to anybody <laughs> anymore because I totally have screwed things up. And, and I, I would just say completely the opposite. Like the fact that you know you screwed things up means yeah. that you actually have a lot to give. And uh, yeah, I think about my own life. Like I'm even on having this conversation with you today in part because when I was 14 years old, uh, my, my parents divorced and I had two men uh, who uh, entered into my life at that stage of my life who said, Kirk, when a divorce happens, people will often take mom's side or dad's side. But I want you to know I'm here to take your side. And those two guys invested in my life throughout my entire teenage years and were, and were like father figures in my life through my whole teen years. 
And, and they are a huge reason why I'm even sitting here today. Wow. Uh, having written this book and having conversations like this with you. And so I, I would just say to any guy who's listening to the podcast right now, um, don't ever write off your impact, your potential impact because of your past impact. Yeah. Mm. And this, this is statistical. 97.24% of grandparents are a crap load better as grandparents than they ever were as parents. So everybody gets better at this. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, that is, uh, I am actually remembering, I had totally forgotten about this about probably between 15 and 20 years ago. I got together with two other guys and we didn't feel like Big Brothers was doing an adequate job of discipling young people. And yeah. so we created a, a whole thing called Big Buddies that we went through the process of, okay, what are the applications going to look like for volunteers, for kids? Because there needed to be a safe place for yeah. moms to know, okay, this is appropriate. Um, and it took us like, I don't know, seven months of meeting once or twice a week. Wow. Any, anybody can do it. Yep. And I think that program's still running. Uh, That's awesome. So for people that are hearing this that think like, wow, what, we do need moms to have a place to go to not just randomly, you know, there's a guy with a cardboard saying needs work. He may or may not be the right guy to mentor your kid. <laughs> uh, so, so you can create it. There's no reason. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be a pastor. You just have to be a person that does the research talks to some churches and gets something in place that you can offer to moms. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there are different sources that are out there that, that could become great resources for you to be able to develop some of those kinds of things. Like the tools are out there. It just takes men who are willing to take those initiatives to, to uh, care and invest in the lives of the young people in their communities. So can people get a hold of you to ask you more questions about uh, how to get their hands on those resources? Yeah, absolutely. They can just contact us at uh, our website is promisekeepers.ca and then go online there to contact us form and and we can point them in the right direction. If they just send us an email, uh, we'd love to be able to do that. All right. And the title of the book again, Kirk? The Seasons of Fatherhood. All right. By Kirk Giles. Haven't even read it, but I know the author well enough to recommend it. Uh, (laughs) And I look forward to getting my copy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, who, who, published, who published it, by the way? Kurt? We self-published this one because we did it really quick. Uh, but uh, I've had uh, our friend Bill Farrell was the editor for the book. Okay. And, uh, we've had a, a number of great endorsements from some other uh, Christian ministry leaders. So we're, we're pretty excited about it. But yeah, Promise Keepers Canada published the book. Okay. When will it be available? It is available now. Uh, It's available right now just directly through our website at promisekeepers.ca, or it will soon be available on Amazon. All right. right. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us and giving some inspiration and tools for moms and dads out there. We got a mixed audience, so I think they're going to have some stuff to think about. Thanks, guys. It's uh, been a privilege to be able to be with you today. Appreciate it. All right, we will be right right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast.
And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, it was so good uh, to talk with Kirk. And he is just an exceptional brother. I love his heart. And he's, uh, I love his, his insight. He's got great wisdom in this fatherhood thing. And he's about at the same stage, I think, as you are on that fatherhood journey yeah. with kids now. Yeah. His, what, his what did you boy. think? What did you think of Kirk? I, well, I, I really liked him. I like that, you know, I've been watching you go up to Canada for these Promise Keepers things for years. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to put a face to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, I can see why you like to go. He was, he seemed like a good guy to hang out with and talk yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. And very yeah. Canadian. I like that. <laughs> I'm fascinated by anybody that lives more than four hours outside of where I live. Just there utterly you. fascinated. So yes, I, yes. I was in. And I also loved hearing you tell maybe the first story about your dad that uh, I was about to phrase that maybe in a bad way. So many of our conversations about your dad revolve around hurts and you don't yeah, always blame yeah. him because yeah. he was going through a hard thing. But this was maybe the first time I've heard you tell a story where he sounded like a father. Yeah. Not the dad that hurt you. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. Thanks for that. Sure. That's, that's gotta be a special treasure in the story box. It is. It is. Well, brother, uh, we'd love to hear from, uh, we always love to hear from listeners. Any reaction to today's conversation? Anything you'd like to add? Yeah. Uh, don't hesitate to uh, sit down at the keyboard and jot us off a note and send it to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear people's thoughts on these uh, topics we discussed today. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think that's about it. I do want to uh, reiterate that we have reserved the first weekend in November, November 2 through 4. More details to follow, but please mark that down as the weekend for a Samson retreat in Middle Tennessee, actually close to Kentucky. We'll be up in the lands, land between the lakes. Uh, uh, more details to follow. I'm hard at work recruiting a a, a planning team. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you've got it on your calendar, Aaron. I've got it on my calendar. All right. Fantastic. All right. Well, until next week then, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast.